You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to Lesson 4. Uh, we're going to look at the controversies and creeds of the early church. In Lesson 4, we're going to focus specifically on the apostolic age to Arianism. This time after the scriptures, the scriptures were mostly completed by the end of the first century. But the time even from there, even during the end of that first century, and up almost through the year 700, these first seven centuries of the church, is this great period of Christological development, sometimes known as uh, the period of controversies and creeds, that the New Testament reveals Christ as Lord, but as the church, as the bride of Christ, continues to meditate on Christ and wants to express her faith in Christ and who Christ is and what Christ has done for her in more and more adequate ways. That as she continues to try to do that, she has to discover things that aren't explicitly stated in Scripture. She's going to ask new questions that weren't asked in Scripture, and she's going to have to come up with new answers that weren't answered specifically in Scripture. We see this, by the way, in general, a wonderful a need for the tradition of the church. That Scripture gives the revelation of Christ to us, but it's not going to answer all the questions that will come up later. We really need the church and her tradition to safeguard the revelation of Christ in Scripture. So during this time where the church reflects on the bride of Christ, just think about the person of Christ here. Think of the face of Christ and think of the face of Christ and think of Christ saying to his church, saying to you, who do you say that I am? And the church and all her believers, all her followers have to all answer that question. Who do you say that I am? And the church over time began to refine that answer. But as she did, as she answered it, many people in the church came up with different theories. And some theories of Christ's identity were correct. Others, the church said under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that these were not correct, that these were not authentic. They weren't accurate portrayals of our bridegroom, of Christ as the husband, the bridegroom of the church. And even already in the letters of St. John, the letters of St. John says that anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is the Antichrist. So already by the time the epistles of John were written in the New Testament, there were already people who were going around saying that Christ did not come in the flesh. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But we see in the church had to say, and John had to say that, no, that's not right. Christ did come in the flesh. We have seen it with our eyes, we have heard it with our ears, we have touched it with our hands. It's real. Christ is real. That's who Christ really is. And so throughout this time, we'll see that the church will continually use Greek metaphysical philosophical terms to explain the mystery of Christ. It's not turning Christianity into Greek philosophy, but it's simply using elements of Greek philosophy to assist in the church's explanation of who Christ is. Actually, one of the ironies is that it's often the heresies that rely too much on Greek philosophy and try to fit Christianity into Greek terms instead of simply using Greek terms to help explain Christianity. Before we begin, 
looking through the history of the Christological controversies, I want to simply make a distinction between being in error and a heresy. That any Christian can fall into error if they happen to hold a false belief about Christ. And anybody, when they first begin to study the Christological controversies, they will begin to wonder how on earth they're ever going to avoid error in Christ because it seems to be so complicated. And there's so many false views about who Christ is or what he has done. Being an heir, although we want to always try to have the best knowledge we can of Christ, is not sinful. Many people faithfully seeking to explain who Christ is might fall into heir, but that doesn't mean they become heretics. Heresy comes from a Greek word which literally means to choose out. Heresy means to choose out of the church. It means that when you've elected out of the fullness of faith, and it's that you've taken one aspect of the faith and by clinging to it so firmly, you've had to choose out to exclude other parts of the faith. And that even when you do this, after the church has corrected you, you continue to hold it. You continue to hold to this stubbornly. So in a way, as I tell my students, to be a heretic is hard work. To be an heir is easy, but to be a heretic is hard work. And hopefully, by studying what the church has taught, by studying the creeds, we're going to be able to have a more accurate understanding of who Christ is. The first section of the heresies and the orthodox responses that we're going to look at can in a way be summarized by the view that Jesus is not really human. There are a couple different ways of this, but this is the main idea. Jesus is not really human. The first approach, the first heresy that kind of gets grouped under this, is Gnosticism. Also, Docetism, and then also later kind of known as Manichaeanism. This begins in the first century and moves onward. All of these heresies, from Gnosticism to Docetism to Manichaeanism, all share in common the view that Jesus is not really human. The eternal God appears in the flesh, appears to be in a human body, but he's not really in a human body. The word docetism comes from the Greek word dokain, and what it means is to seem or to appear. So Jesus appeared to be a human, but he wasn't a full human being. He wasn't a real human being. And the view of Christ has at least two main sources. First, there are a few passages from the New Testament which seem to suggest that there was something unusual about Jesus' humanity. John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Some people would interpret this literally as though Jesus didn't need regular food. Also, even the passage we just looked at, Philippians 2, 7, Christ was born in the likeness of men. Although it seems Paul is there clearly saying that he was just like us. He's in the likeness of men. Some people interpreted that to mean, well, he was only in the likeness of men, and therefore he was not really like us. But deeper than simply a couple passages here or there, Gnosticism and Docetism are all founded in a profoundly dualistic view of the world. What is dualism? Dualism is basically the doctrine that there are two fundamental principles in the universe fundamental principles of all things. There is one principle that is good, a good power or force behind the world, and there is another principle or force that is evil. I always tell my students that to understand dualism, all you have to really think about is Star Wars. You know, it's the light, the force, versus the dark side. And there's two forces, and they're pretty much in battle with each other. It's not clear which one is going to win. It's not clear which one is stronger but they're simply in battle. They're both the two principles of the world. 
This is profoundly opposed to Christianity. Christianity says that there is only one ultimate principle of the world, a good, wise God who created the universe. It also says that because of the sin of the devil, because of the sin of man, there is an evil force at work in the world, but that evil force at work in the world ultimately depends upon God. Depends upon God who gives it being and who permits it to exist. So therefore, there's only one principle, the Creator, God, and we simply see in this world the struggle between good and evil. The struggle between good and evil is not the struggle between a good Creator God and a bad Creator God, but the struggle is simply between wills, between the wills of man and of angels that have either chosen for God or chosen against God. So what else did dualism do? Well, dualism, which had the two contrasting powers, good and evil, fighting each other, what they would tend to say almost always is that the good force was spiritual and material creation happened when the evil force, the dark force, had some kind of battle with the good force. And the material creation was when the good force was trapped in matter. So because of that, matter and material existence in general, bodily existence in general, are evil. And the good force is the spiritual reality. And for us to become good, according to a dualistic worldview, means we have to get rid of the flesh get rid of our bodies, and eventually be liberated to a true spiritual reality. True spiritual reality of this immaterial creation, the spiritual force. So according to the dualists, you can't have a real incarnation, where incarnate, literally, becoming flesh, becoming material. That would be absurd to a dualist, because how could the good God become flesh become material if matter is evil? Well, it can't. So what they would say is that the good God appeared to be flesh. He took on the form of a man, but he wasn't really a man, simply to appear to us, to lead us all back to heaven. And literally, there were some Gnostic theories of Christ where they would say that they would take the term Jesus Christ and they would divide it and they would say Jesus is the man, Christ. He's what looks to be like a man, and Christ is the Word. And they would literally say that just before Jesus suffered on the cross, Christ the Word left him. So that on the cross, you only have the man suffering, only the material, which is evil anyway, and not the Word. They were very, very much wanted to keep the Word, God, separate from flesh and suffering. By the way, this heresy is very popular in it resources in the Middle Ages especially in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries uh, under the Cathars and Albigensians. And the Dominicans and the Franciscans, in many ways, both kind of re-evangelized them by saying that things of the world are good, but nonetheless, we will still give them up. So their poverty was aimed to show that we give the things up of the world not because they're bad, but we give them up because they're good and therefore can compete with our affection for God. So how did the church respond to this Gnostic docetic view? Well, what the church said is that the eternal son came in a true human body and soul. Saint Ignatius of Antioch, who died in 107, insisted on that the reports of earth, Christ's earthly life, that they were alethos, they were truthful. 
These were true reports that they truly narrated the acts of the Messiah in the flesh. And so therefore they weren't false. They didn't only appear when Jesus ate food, he really was eating food. When he was suffering, he was really suffering. Ignatius would literally say, of course, if Jesus didn't really die on the cross, if that wasn't really God dying on the cross, then why was he going to be a martyr? Right? If the acts of the flesh were of no value, were of no worth in Christ, then why was Ignatius going to be a martyr? The blood of the martyrs would also be worthless. So Ignatius very firmly said, no, Christ was a true man. He was a true man. His earthly life was alethos. It was truthful. Irenaeus in the second century, also a great defender of the faith against Gnosticism, he connects the fleshly reality of Christ to the real presence of the flesh of Christ in the Eucharist. And he says that since we believe, which is the common teaching of the church at that time, that the Eucharist is the flesh of Christ, that it becomes the flesh and blood of Christ. He says, since we believe that, therefore, flesh and blood must be good. Flesh and blood cannot be evil, as the Gnostics or the dualists would say. Flesh and blood are good because God is present in the Eucharist through them. God wouldn't give himself to us under material forms in the Eucharist if he hadn't already become material and sanctified material reality in Jesus Christ. Two passages that the church pointed to to show the truthfulness of Christ being flesh. Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. This is Jesus appearing to the apostles after his resurrection. Handle me and see. For a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and wondered, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And again, what Jesus is doing here, it's not fake. He's doing it truly to truly show that he truly exists, that his body is true flesh and blood. Also, we have John 6, 53 through 56. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Finally, 2 Peter 1, 16. It was not by way of cleverly concocted myths that we taught you about the coming in power of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we were eyewitnesses of his sovereign majesty. This is not mythical. It's not a fable. It is they are witnesses of a reality that has occurred. Two little images that I use with students often to help them get a sense for what this is, we can use as follows. For Gnosticism, we can really see that we have the Son, who's the eternal Son, but the eternal Son comes down and takes what appears to be a human body, but is reality neither. There's no human body and there's no human soul. No human body, no soul. The eternal Son becomes simply a figment of our imagination, simply something to touch and to see, but something that's not real. The orthodox response can be depicted like this. The sun with the human nature inside, and the human nature that is truly human, truly human, and this will include body and soul. Everything that is truly human is present in Christ. Now, the second heresy that I want to look at is called Valentinianism. And it comes up in, again in the early second century. And it takes the same, in a way, distrust for the human nature of Jesus that 
Gnosticism showed. But it was a little different, a little bit more sophisticated, we might say. Instead of that Jesus is just appearing so that the Gospels themselves are almost fictitious, Valentinianism says that Jesus, he doesn't have a fully human body. Instead, it says that he has a heavenly body. If we're going to draw that, we would see that it's like this. We have the eternal son, but then he assumes to himself not a real body, but a heavenly body. A heavenly body and there's no soul present here either. And so for Valentinianism, we again have this idea that, well, Jesus, there's a body there, and so when the apostles touch him, it's real, but it's not a real body like ours. It's not a body truly from the line of Adam, but it's a body that's pure and holy from heaven. They had a couple passages from the New Testament that supported this. 1 Corinthians 15, 47, for instance, says that the first man, Adam, was of the earth, formed from dust. The second is from heaven. Adam's body comes from dust. Jesus' body comes from heaven. That's the way they read that. Since reading it in a way overly literally. Also, John 3.13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, they took the truth that the word descended from heaven to become a man to literally mean that Jesus' body is a heavenly body. But the main response of the orthodoxy to Valentinism was very similar to the response of Gnosticism. Simply that Jesus is the eternal son in a true human body and soul. That the gospel accounts are not fictitious. That he is really born of the Virgin Mary. And that even overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, he is born of Mary's flesh. He shares our flesh. He is like us in all things but sin. So because of that, the church said, no, Jesus doesn't have a heavenly body. He has a truly human body, as Ignatius spoke of and as Irenaeus spoke of. All of these passages, all these teachings then from the church, in a way, center around the theme that their created reality is good. Created reality is good. The problem with man is sin, the fact that he has chosen to disobey God. But there is nothing wrong with created reality in and of itself. The world is good. It was created by God. Jesus has become a man. In his human nature, he is just like us. There's a profound reaction to dualism to say that the world as created by God is good. What is wrong is sinfulness, and Christ has come by restoring in a truly human created body and soul. He has come to restore creation to its proper element. The next section I want to look at is not the part that looks at Jesus as not really a man, but the second part that looks at Jesus as not really God, the eternal Son. What happens, in a way, this is not surprising, is that we have reactions. It goes back and forth, these heresies. Another heresy that is important in the church's understanding of Christ is what's known as Sabellianism, also sometimes called modalism. Sabellianism or modalism, or sometimes Sabellianistic modalism or modalistic Sabellianism, these different approaches all basically see that there were not three distinct persons in the Trinity, but simply three modes by which God reveals himself. So there's one God, and at first God appeared as a father, then God appeared as the Son, then God appears as the Holy Spirit. But there are not three persons, it's simply one being the one being of God. 
So what happens then is that God the Father literally becomes a son when he becomes man. If we're going to diagram this, we would do it like this. We would have the Father becomes the Son, but I put it in quotes here because he's not really the Son as the church understands the eternal Son of the Father. And in this Son, then, is the human nature. So we have the eternal Father becomes the Son, and therefore is not eternally a Father. He becomes a Son, and then this Son is what assumes a human nature. And they would have a couple different passages that would support this. John 14, 9, 10, which we've already looked at. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. One other charge that the church would have against Sabellianism is that Sabellianism literally had the Father then dying on the cross. The Father died on the cross. And this was known as pater passionists. And pater passionism was always ruled out by the church that the Father didn't suffer on the cross, the Son did. But there was a distinction. The church responded to this in several different ways. But it always responded that there are distinct persons in the Trinity, three distinct persons in the Trinity, and that the second person was incarnate in Christ. And what this would center around is that in God, the Orthodox response was that there is one essence or nature, or substantia in the Latin, and there were three persons or personas. The one nature, three persons. Saint Clement of Alexandria in the Greek he used the word trias, kind of like triad, meaning three to apply to God. God is a triad, even though he's one. Tertullian and Cyprian and others in the West, they use the Latin word trinitas. Trinity, of course, is not mentioned in the New Testament. It's Tertullian and Cyprian and others that begin to refer to God as a trinity, showing that God is one, one essence, one nature, but he is three persons. So because of that, we begin to get a development in Christology that in Christ, that just as in the Trinity, there is one nature and three persons, so in Christ, there are two natures and one person. But only one person becomes incarnate in Christ. And that one person in Christ now has two natures. The last heresy I want to look at during this lesson is adoptionism. Adoptionism is, again, basically a view that Jesus is not fully God. Adoptionism has basically roots in the Old Testament, that just as in the Old Testament, kings were literally almost adopted as sons of God at their coronation ceremonies. We saw that in Psalm 2, today I have begotten you. The king is adopted as the son of God. He becomes the son of God when he is anointed by God in the spirit. And of course, in the New Testament, all Christians are said that they can become children of God, John 1:12 says, right, all who have received him, he has given power to become children of God. So all of us can become children of God. And this view, which is in the first century, was proposed by Jewish Christians known as the Ebionites. The Ebionites kind of were the early form. Adoptionism was a slightly later form. But what adoptionism, if we want to depict adoptionism, we can say that this is the eternal son, this is the human nature, but the human nature is, in a sense, adopted to become a son. But it obviously isn't the eternal son because it only becomes a son in time. God isn't really the eternal father because he doesn't eternally have a son. There are all sorts of reasons why this is a problem. But what the adoptionists would point to, they would point to Jesus' baptism at that moment when he was adopted. 
and they would in a way reduce Jesus's adoption to simply being an adopted son by grace in the way we are instead of being the eternal son by nature. The church responded in several different ways. And by the way, this is an important heresy because many contemporary scholars, much contemporary biblical scholarship often falls prey to this adoptionistic heresy. Jesus is really simply a good man, a faithful man. And because he's so faithful, God dwells in him and God rewards him. But this is adoptionism and it's not what the church teaches about Christ. And the church responds in many ways, but one of the ways she responded was to look at John 1, 1 and 1, 14 to show that there's the pre-existence word, also Philippians 2 that said that he was in the form of God. And also, uh, and finally, John 8, 58, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.